I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Dove Waxman, is a political science professor and chair of Israel Studies at UCLA, whose research focuses on the conflict over Israel-Palestine, Israeli politics and foreign policy, U.S.-Israel relations, American Jewry's relationship with Israel, Jewish politics, and anti-Semitism. He is the author of dozens of scholarly articles and four books, The Pursuit of Peace and the Crisis of Israeli Identity, Defending slash Defining the Nation, published in 2006, Israel's Palestinians, The Conflict Within, published in 2011, Trouble in the Tribe, The American Jewish Conflict over Israel, published in 2016, and most recently, The Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, What Everyone Needs to Know, published in 2019. He has also been widely published in mainstream news media and has been a frequent commentator on television and radio. Today's interview will focus primarily on contemporary anti-Semitism in the United States. So, Dove, welcome to Delving In. Thank you. Happy to be with you. Okay, so tell us a bit about your background, uh, having studied and taught in the UK, US, and Israel. And what were your impressions of the dominant perspectives about anti-Semitism in each of these places? And you don't have to answer this all at once. This could be throughout the interview. But I think it's interesting that you have that diverse background. Sure. So uh, I'm originally from the UK. I grew up in the UK. And uh, as a child, I actually attended an Orthodox Jewish boarding school. And so I encountered some anti-Semitism when I was at that school, because when we, for example, played against other sports teams, we would uh, routinely get teased sometimes by our opponents and just that kind of casual anti-Semitism that you encounter sometimes on the school grounds. And I went on to do my undergraduate degree at Oxford University and really didn't experience a great deal of anti-Semitism there or in the UK in general. It was much more what we used to call the polite anti-Semitism, the kind of genteel anti-Semitism that was more customary in the UK. In, in other words, you get, I remember when I was at college, one of my friends, when we were always, I was always being asked about Israel and always being asked to explain Israel's actions or defend Israel's actions. And I would often say, why are you asking me? I'm British, not Israeli. But somehow being Jewish and being publicly, I, I didn't, I never disavowed or hid my Jewishness, put me in that what I often experienced is a very awkward position of having to talk about Israel, even if I didn't want to. And I remember on one occasion, a friend of mine saying, you're not really English, are you? And I always felt that. I always felt somehow being Jewish was in tension with being English. We, growing up, my parents would talk about the English as if they were some other group of people, not us, even though I was born and raised in England. And I think actually some of that influenced my decision to move to the United States, which I did after graduate school, after my undergraduate, sorry, and I went to the US for graduate school. And gradually through my PhD and then in my academic work, increasingly focused on Israel, on the, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I didn't deal with anti-Semitism and it wasn't an issue that I, I felt I needed to deal with. It wasn't something that I felt was uh, something I needed to address in my academic work on about Israel or about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But over the last few years, I increasingly realized that discussions about Israel and about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, in these kinds of discussions, increasingly the charges of anti-Semitism and debates about whether it, this claim or that claim was anti-Semitic kept cropping up. 
And so I felt that the issue of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was increasingly being tangled up in, in various ways with the issue of anti-Semitism. And so I needed to start thinking more about anti-Semitism. And on a personal level, as a Jewish American, one also became increasingly aware of the continuing problem of anti-Semitism in the United States. I always, coming from Europe, had this view of the United States as being relatively free of anti-Semitism, as many American Jews believed. But then the Unite the Right March in Charlottesville in 2017, and of course then the mass murder of Jews in Pittsburgh in synagogue in 2018, disabused me of those beliefs and made me realize that anti-Semitism was still very much uh, alive and well in the United States. And so I decided to start really studying it, first of all, just for my own purposes, to understand really how much of an issue is this? How much of a problem is it? And, and then also to be able to pass these debates about when whether what criticisms of Israel or protests against Israel are anti-Semitic, what aren't, when does some when does discourse about Israel become anti-Semitic, and and that led me then to my current research. Yeah, I wanted just to follow up on one of the things you said about your experience in England, is that I, it's it seems to me that in Europe it's almost a given that being Jewish is a nationality; it's not just a religion. And of course, there are places like the, the former Soviet Union where, where that would be stamped on your passport as a nationality. Whereas in the United States, I think there's, a, a, in my view, an erroneous uh, belief that Judaism is just a religion. And it's I think you could even find American Jews who want to believe that too. <laughs> I wouldn't even say that's true across Europe, though. In France, for example, there's a very long standing tradition among French Jews, among certain French Jews at least, to think of, of their Jewishness in very private terms as just a religious identity. And that this goes back to the Sanhedrin, the Napoleonic Sanhedrin, that they were Frenchmen of the Mosaic persuasion. Right? So in France, at least, I think parts of the French Jewish community really think of Jewishness and Judaism as a purely as a religious or maybe cultural marker and not in any national way. I don't know if I thought of it as so much of as a national identity, but definitely as a kind of ethno-ethnic identity and one that was in tension with Englishness, not with Britishness as a civic identity, but with being English, which for me meant much more being Christian. And so, yeah, it was very, when I was at my school, this, as I mentioned, this Orthodox boarding school, we would have conversations about if there was a war between England and Israel, who would you fight for? A kind of a conversation that I think for most American Jews is completely inconceivable. They never experienced any tension between their Americanness and their Jewishness. The two seemed to be not only harmonious, but actually even enhance one another. And in Britain, we, I, we always wrestled with that sense of being this small minority and whether we could be fully accepted as and feel fully English. Yeah, one of the, I think, proofs in a sense that Judaism is not just a religion is that it makes sense to talk about a secular Jew, where it doesn't make sense to talk about a secular Christian or a secular Muslim. That's right. And I think, yeah, that's one of the things that often confounds and confuses people because, yeah, for most Jews, most Jews, in fact, may identify as being secular Jews. And with that, and that it doesn't require any uh, affiliation to Judaism per se. In fact, the largest growing category of Jews in the United States are Jews 
who identify as Jewish but not by religion. So they make that distinction. That's, you know, the, I think the Pew uh, survey from a few years ago showed that is a growing group. And uh, yeah, so it is. It is certainly a kind of ethno-religious or ethno-cultural identity. And of course, at the heart of Zionism is the uh, claim that Jews constitute a nation. And insofar as many Jews have internalized that, I think they do identify in some ways as a nation. Right. And and maybe the closest analogy is Native Americans. There are tribes that have their own religion and their own ethnicity and their own history and their own lineage. Absolutely. And of course, Judaism is not a a pure lineage. Obviously, there have been conversions. So it's not a pure race in that sense, even despite what the Nazis said. That's right. But Jews have never agreed among themselves and continue to debate quite what does Jewishness mean. I think ever since the Enlightenment, really, that split when Jews moved away from Judaism, there's been that underlying kind of identity crisis, if you will, about what is it to be a Jew if you no longer believe in Judaism. Yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention in, in what you said is that the accusations of being disloyal potentially to the host state, that's not something you hear about very often here in the US, but certainly in Europe, it was a very much a thing. And it's in fact, it's one of the definitions of anti-Semitism as put out by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. And I, it's something that I downloaded uh, just earlier today. And it's quite a long set of definitions that fills a couple of columns. But that's one of them. And there's the kind of canard that Jews are not really loyal. They would just turn on a dime to support Israel, even if it meant it would be against the interests of the state that, that, they, that the Jews live in. That's right. I, I would say, though, that charge is not heard in the United States. I think it is being quite voiced. I've heard it voiced quite frequently, at least on social media and even in on cable TV in over the last few years. Sometimes it's not voiced directly. It's more in more coded manner. Zionists, for example, rather than Jews, but the claim that, for example, in the controversy over the US invasion of Iraq in 2003, there were those who argued that the so-called neocons who were Jewish were pushing this war, pushing the United States to invade Iraq because they were Jewish. And it was out of loyalty to Israel, not to the interests of the United States. Charges of dual loyalty are still, I think, in currency in the United States. But the prevalent culture, the, or at least the dominant one uh, historically, ha, ha, in, in recent years, has allowed for dual loyalty, allows for the fact that people have more than one Mexican-Americans, Irish-Americans, Italian-Americans. You're allowed to have multiple allegiances and identities. And I, I think that's the difference with some countries in Europe where that, that hyphenated identities are just less accepted. So I wanted to also ask you about Jewish uh, paranoia, if that's a thing. Are Jews safe in the U.S.? I, I grew up hearing that, oh, Jews are never permanently safe anywhere because anti-Semitism will eventually arise wherever there's a large Jewish community. It happened in Spain. It happened in Germany. It happened in so many places. And the question, is there going to be a, a persecution eventually? I can't imagine an expulsion, but massacres. How much vigilance is reasonable without slipping into paranoia? I don't really buy into that, what the the great Jewish historian, Professor at Columbia, Salo Boron, termed it the lachrymose view of Jewish history, that basically looks back at Jewish history as this this long series of persecutions and and oppressions. There are moments of of relative... Or centuries, centuries of, of relative prosperity. 
Exactly, and so so I think that that that, that, that this view that believe that holds that anti-Semitism is this kind of constant presence across uh, continents and th- across space and time, and is therefore always lurking in the shadows, about to break out. I think really flattens Jewish history, homogenizes it, and ignores the, a lot of variation both across time and across place. That said, of course. Uh, my, uh, as, as a minority group historically who, who have faced a persecution and oppression, I think it is not surprising why Jews, because of their minority status, would continue to feel vulnerable, and particularly because of Jewish history over the last century. I think what's given rise to that view even more is, of course, the Holocaust. And that's led to a tendency to read Jewish history backwards as this just long anti-Semitism culminating in the Holocaust. So I think in many ways, although I don't agree with that, I understand where that's coming from. And I think Jews are, as a result of particularly the Holocaust, deeply traumatized. We have a that this collect intergenerational kind of collective memory of, of, of genocide and of, of oppression. Um, but I do think it sometimes can lead Jews to overstate dangers or even overreact to dangers, it's necessary to be aware that, of course, security is never absolute and one's safety can always be jeopardized. But I think we can sometimes exaggerate the dangers. And I would say we're probably in danger of doing that today in the United States, where I think while there is a worrying rise of anti-Semitism in some respects, I think we shouldn't overlook the fact that Jews are still very broadly liked and admired in the United States and Jewish life is is flourishing in the United States. So while we need to be concerned about the increases in anti-Semitic incidents and in anti-Semitic discourse and the mainstreaming of anti-Semitic tropes and ideas, this idea that somehow we're, it's the 1930s all over again, I think is, at least for now, completely historically inaccurate. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with you. I don't have my, my bags ready uh, to be packed. But the other part of the, of the idea, though, is not so much the flattening of history, but the idea that there's a uh, kind of a circulating memes or, or stereotypes or calumnies that circulate in the culture and at times they erupt into a viral pandemic of anti-Semitic thoughts. And that happens when there's a perfect storm of stressful societal and economic conditions that require a scapegoat. And that's the thing that that makes it unpredictable because in Nazi Germany, that happened relatively quickly. Just in a very few short years, those ideas erupted and there were enough people who agreed with them to ally with it and create the Holocaust, which was not just from the Nazis top down, but required a lot of participation by all sorts of people in many countries. Yeah, I think you're right that anti-Semitic ideas, um, stereotypes and tropes are deeply embedded in in Western culture. Some of these anti-Semitic ideas, like uh, the, you know, myth of deicide, for example, the charge that Jews were responsible for killing Jesus, that this is a very old idea. The blood libel is is very old. It's been around for, for many centuries. And so I think it's true that Many people, maybe as many as a third or more of Americans, believe some of these anti-Semitic stereotypes or tropes. 
That isn't the same as supporting genocidal anti-Semitism. Believing that Jews are good, uh, believing in anti-Semitic stereotypes is one thing. And so I think even in the case of, of and I'm not an expert on the Holocaust, my sister is actually a, a, Holocaust, a scholar of the Holocaust. And so we've, I've asked her some questions. And, and I think that most Germans, it wasn't that anti-Semitism became a majority opinion among Germans. Certainly there was widespread anti-Semitic tropes and, and ideas circulating. But I think that's much more a case of how a determined minority, an ideological minority, is able to essentially eradicate democracy and intimidate, terrorize, and get others to allow for the genocide, to not intervene rather than actively take part themselves necessarily. So it's more about the kind of passivity and timidity of the majority in the face of a very determined, organized, fanatical, extreme minority on this case of Nazis. And that is something I think we need to be very mindful of, that no matter that democracy, and we've seen democracies are, are vulnerable to demagoguery, to extremism. And, and, and undoubtedly, in recent years, I think one of the reasons, as you said, one of the reasons why anti-Semitic discourse has, has grown is because we've been living through a time of economic and political and social disruption, partly as a result of the pandemic, but also economic changes. And in that in circumstances, when people are very worried about their future and, and, and there is a tendency to look for scapegoats. We have to recognize, though, in the United States today that the major scapegoat in, uh, who are being scapegoated are not Jews. They're generally immigrants. The major scapegoating discourse, at least being promoted by the Republican Party, is to scapegoat uh, immigrants. So we may not be the canary in the coal mine this time, but the, but the coal mine may nevertheless collapse, not just on the canaries. Absolutely. No, I think there's always, you know, um, when um, we see one form of hate increase and rise, whether it's a kind of xenophobia, nativism, that also doesn't tend to bode well for Jews or other minority groups. But it is important to recognize, I think, in, that in recent years, it's not just anti-Semitism that's been growing, but also anti-Asian uh, racism, anti-Muslim racism, homophobia, and xenophobia. So we're seeing a whole cluster of prejudices or hatreds rise together. Yeah, and I think the assumption is that the, the dynamics behind all of those are more similar than different. And there's, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to learn from them. Exactly. They take they manifest in different ways, and there's specific discourses, and they each have their own histories. But yes, I think we understand the why the resurgence of anti-Semitism if we only look at it in isolation and we don't look at it as also happening in tandem with these other increases in other forms of racism. So let's talk a bit about how anti-Semitism manifests in the U.S., both from the right and the left, because that's interesting that it can occur from either side. Of course, historically, you had the fascist anti-Semitism and you also had the Soviet anti-Semitism. But in this country, too, you have both, both sides. Absolutely. I, I would say anti-Semitism exists all along the political spectrum. There may be centrists who also have anti-Semitic ideas. It's not just tend to be less ideological. <laughs> but that's you're talking about specific kind of anti-Semitism, yes. ideological anti-Semitism. So that's one way in which anti-Semitism manifests, an ideology as a kind of entire world view. 
I think, and that's certainly true, that's most clearly the case in in white nationalism, I think, where anti-Semitism is a very core element, central element. Eric Ward, who has written about this very well, about how many, in many ways the animating idea at the heart of white nationalism is anti-Semitism, because white nationalists or white supremacists, they have such a disparaging and demeaning view of black people that they, for example, or of immigrants, for example, don't believe that they can be responsible for misdeeds. It must be Jews who are orchestrating what they believe to be this great replacement, right? That, that this mass immigration of people to replace white Christian Americans. So in, in the case of kind of contemporary on the right, we do have this ideology white nationalism in which anti-Semitism is a very core component. And I think that is especially dangerous, not only because it is an ideology that is growing, that is has increasingly a place in mainstream, in conservative movement and in, in the Republican Party, but also because there is a clear overlap between people who believe these ideas and people who are also heavily armed. So on the right, we have not just belief in, anti- in anti-Semitic ideology in this kind of white nationalism, but also a predilection for high-powered weaponry, which can result in mass murder in seconds, as we saw in, in Pittsburgh in 2018. But we also there's also been a whole slew of mass murders, of uh, massacres committed by armed white nationalists, believing in the replacement theory. So I think that is the single most dangerous anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that is circulating today. And it's one that is being echoed, as I said, by by some Republican politicians in Congress and by right-wing pundits. On the left, you do have this ideology as well. You have a kind of far-left ideology Anti-Semitism, I think, plays less of a central role in that. I think in many ways on the far left, the problem is often the way in which they are blind to anti-Semitism, that they do not recognize anti-Semitism except when it comes from the far right. And so there's a tendency to believe on the left that because you're committed to anti-racism and you're opposed to nationalism or you're opposed to racism, that there's not going to be anti-Semitism in your own ranks. And when it or when it does appear, you're going to deny it and ex- or excuse it as just criticism of Israel. So, so in many ways, it's a kind of blindness, failure to recognize anti-Semitism that is really problematic because it because that does allow anti-Semitism to grow. We saw that in the United Kingdom, for example, during the Jeremy Corbyn's tenure of the Labour Party. I don't think it was simply that Corbyn was necessarily himself anti-Semitic, but he was unable to recognize the problem of anti-Semitism in his own party and among some of his supporters because he viewed uh, anti-Semitism in a very narrow way and didn't recognize how Jews could be victims of, of racism. So I think there is an, there is definitely an issue of that kind of ideology, anti-Semitism on the extremes. But I also, but I don't buy the so-called horseshoe theory, which says that anti-Semitism is equally a problem on the far left and on the far right. The survey, the data that I've seen, the empirical data shows that anti-Semitic attitudes are much more prevalent on the far right. So it doesn't go on the extremes. It, it moves, it, it is, is much greater on the far right, and particularly among young people on the far right today. And which, So it's not to say that anti-Semitism doesn't exist 
on the left. It certainly does, and we've seen that in recent months. But I don't think I would draw an equation. I, I would equate the two. And one of the ideas it seems to me on the far left is that there's a tendency to divide the world into victimizers and victims. And how could American Jews be victims when they're so successful as a group? Absolutely. If, if they're the ones who are uh, successful in Hollywood and academia and science and medicine and all these different areas, how can they possibly be victims at the same time? Yeah, I think there's a couple. I think that I think there's a couple of problems there. First of all, there is this tendency to frame or to understand to see Jews as white, which first of all ignores the fact that maybe around 10% or more of the American Jewish community are not white. So it also ignores and erases the presence of Jews of color. But because Jews are um, framed or, or perceived as white, and therefore simply as members of the white majority, um, there is this uh, inability or uh, unwillingness to acknowledge that Jews are also victims of racism. And part of that is because racism in the United States has come to be framed in terms of color. And so we think of racism as anti-black racism, and we think of racism, therefore, as something affecting people of color. And because Jews are seen as white, therefore, Jews cannot be victims of racism. And because Jews are seen as white, they're seen as they're powerful and prosperous, and therefore they fall on the wrong side of that oppressed, oppressor divide. There's a lot of problems with that kind of worldview or that ideology in how it positions Jews. I don't think that's anti-Semitism per se that's animating that, but it's an ideology that, uh, that can allow for anti-Semitism, can fail to recognize anti-Semitism and can in the worst cases, as we saw after October the 7th, can actually condone or even excuse or even justify or even celebrate anti-Semitic violence. So one of the famous examples of what we we're just talking about is Whoopi Goldberg, who famously denied that Jews could possibly be a victim of racism because they're not black or they're not exactly. dark. And she eventually, to her credit, apologized. And it's so ironic because she, she, her last name was not always Goldberg. <laughs> she took us, I don't know, she thought maybe a Jewish surname would make her more successful, who knows. But so she did walk it back. Yeah, but that's, it, wasn't a, it, it is, I think, an excellent example because the, behind the, her comments, I think, was this view, I think she seems like the Holocaust was white on white violence, like it wasn't about race. And of course, the Holocaust was about race. Jews were seen as a kind of inferior subhuman race. And that was on that those grounds that they deserved to be exterminated. But that, I think, illustrates the way in which the notion of race and racism in American discourse has become associated specifically with American history and the color line. And when people think about race, they think of it in terms of white, black. They think of it in terms of color, whereas race doesn't exist. When I say think about anti-Semitism as anti-Jewish racism, one of the first objections I often hear is people say, but Jews aren't a race. And I'm saying, but nobody's a race. There's only one race, the human race, right? It's not about Jews actually being a race. It's the way in which groups of people like Jews are racialized, are treated as if they're a race. And that was obviously the, true during the Holocaust. And I think we can see that in white nationalist, far white discourse and neo-Nazi discourse. Jews are treated as if they're a race. They are in, immutable characteristics are attributed to Jews. 
which is what we mean by when we think about racialization. And it's not just Jews who are racialized. Muslims are also racialized, treated as if they have some sort of innate characteristics, which make them therefore potentially dangerous or deserving of suspicion or different treatment. So I think we need to have a, a broader understanding of race and racism and of how it operates uh, and apply that to anti-Semitism, which isn't to say that anti-Jewish racism is the same as anti-Black racism or as bad as in its effects as anti-Black racism today. But I do think we can under- learn from different forms of racism. Yeah, one thing that we haven't mentioned yet is the tendency by anti-Semites to treat each Jew as somehow representative of the whole group. And this gets internalized, I think. I, I remember growing up, you know, that whenever a, a Jew was in the news doing something bad, he said, oh, this is going to look terrible for the Jews, was the comment. But that's not exactly what I mean. That's a great example of racialization, right? To treating, if you treat, if you assume somehow there's some sort of Jewish gene or Jewish tendency, one person, that is at the heart of all racism, is homogenizing members of a group and of, of saying they all share some sort of common characteristic. And that's common among anti-Semites, obviously, to treat Jews as if the actions of anyone is representative of the whole. It's also common among philo-Semites, right? The same, it's the same tendency. It's the same tendency to, to treat, to see one Jewish person as somehow representative, emblematic. So for anti-Semites, it's negative. For philo-Semites, it's positive. But also blaming each individual, that each individual is blameworthy because of what someone else did. My mother tells a story, she grew up in Brooklyn, and, but not in a Jewish neighborhood. And one of her friends, when she was, I don't know, six or seven, said that you killed Jesus. And she responded, but I never killed anybody. Exactly. And for the racist, it's blaming a mem- one person for accusing all the group of the actions of one person. But the same is true of being praiseworthy, right? You might say, oh, Jews are so smart. Look how many Jewish Nobel Prize winners there are. And we take pride in that. That's part of the thing. Once you, it's not just among the, the haters that there's this tendency to like, infer from the, from the behavioral actions of one characteristics of the whole. And I think that kind of thinking is, is that kind of logic, which is psychologically very easy to do. We almost need to categorize people and we need to apply these kinds of characteristics. But that's at the heart of, of a lot of that racial stereotyping and prejudice. Yeah, then on, on the left, you have organizers, let's say, of the Women's March, assuming that the Jewish leaders who would have been leading that march were somehow agreeing with the policies of Israel just because they were Jewish and were excluded from the leadership on that ground. Yes, and I think one, that's one of the, I think a, a common problem today is a tendency to assume that Jews are necessarily supporters of Israel and supporters of whatever Israeli, the Israeli government is doing. And if they're not, at least they have to publicly or, or a disavow uh, Israel or Zionism or the Israeli government. And like I was saying when I was a college student, that somehow you, you have that burden that you have to either distance yourself from Israel or have to justify, explain Israel, or justify Israel's actions. And that is a, a common form of the way of, of anti-Semitic thinking. It's not necessarily motivated by hatred of Jews, but it is just this conflation of Jews and Israel and Jews and Zionists, which 
let's face it, isn't just something that people who are anti-Semitic do. Jews do it themselves. For sure. So this leads to the really difficult question of when does the criticism of Israel cross the line into anti-Semitism? I'm sure that both of us agree that it's not, they're not equivalent. And yet it is possible for it to, there is a line that can be crossed and it's very difficult to define. It is. And I think sometimes it's being deliberately blurred. So it makes it even harder to, uh, to, to identify. I think there's, there, there are different ways in which I would answer that question, because I think to understand when does criticism of Israel become anti-Semitic, we need to give the same answer as if we were answering when does any speech become anti-Semitic, right? Not just speech about Israel, but any kind of speech. What are the criteria, in other words, or the grounds which would make speech become anti-Semitic? And one, one grounds, one criteria would, would be when it invokes or draws on or re- repeats, recycles anti-Semitic tropes, anti-Semitic stereotypes, anti-Semitic ideas. It's, it's entirely legitimate to criticize Israel. But if your criticism, if you're doing that in a way that's drawing, even unwittingly drawing on anti-Semitic tropes and stereotypes, then it becomes anti-Semitic. So, for example, there's the accusation, the traditional trope that Jews seek to manipulate international affairs and control foreign governments and pull the strings of of governments and control the media. So if Israel is being accused of this, if Israel or Zionists are being accused of manipulating world events, if they're being charged with as being as some charged Israel as being behind 9-11, for example, or responsible for the war in Iraq. That's where you can end up invoking, whether knowingly or not, an anti-Semitic trope. If you are accusing Israel, I think, of absolute evil, not just being carrying, not just accusing Israel of human rights violations or war crimes, but if Israel is somehow uniquely evil, not more worse than any other country today and any other country ever, that is where it, I think you're drawing upon this anti-Semitic trope because Jews were in, uh, in historically accused of being a kind of source of metaphysical evil. And you're, by all means, you can criticize Israel. I criticize Israel frequently. But how you criticize Israel matters. And, you, and I think people have to be careful in making their criticisms to not draw on these anti-Semitic tropes and ideas. If you're accusing Israel of deliberately seeking to harvest the organs of Palestinian children, that does echo the blood libel, which accused Jews of seeking to use the blood of Christian children for ritual purposes. So any kind of speech can become anti-Semitic when you're drawing on these anti-Semitic tropes, stereotypes and ideas. It can also be anti-Semitic if it's motivated and by anti-Semitic. In other words, somebody might be criticizing Israel and even doing so in non, not in obviously anti-Semitic ways. But the reason they're criticizing Israel is because they hate Jews and therefore they want to express, but they can't say that or they don't feel that they can say that publicly, openly. So it's more respectable and convenient for them to just attack Zionists. When you're using Zionists as a kind of code for Jews, if you could just replace the term and you'd be basically talking about Jews, then that can also be, that's also anti-Semitic. I'm not saying most people who criticize Israel are motivated by anti-Semitism, but some certainly might be. And then I would say, finally, if, you're, if it leads to anti-Semitic actions, in other words, 
if you're attacking Israel and the posters are so much that it leads you to then harass Jews and it le- or it leads you to attack a Jewish person or as we've seen over the last few months, graffiti or firebomb a synagogue, for example, that is anti-Semitism. Even if you're doing it in protest out of Israel, you are targeting a Jewish institution. You're blaming Jews or conflating Jews of Israel. That's also anti-Semitic. There are many ways, and we've seen over the last few months, lots of, unfortunately, examples of ways in which opposition or criticism of Israel can lead to anti-Semitism. Now, what, what about uh, if someone has the position that Israel should not exist as a, as a Jewish state? Does that cross the line? I don't think that crosses the line. So I think it's important to distinguish uh, between anti-Zionism or opposition to Israel's continued existence as a Jewish state and anti-Semitism. That's not to say that position might not be motivated by anti-Semitism or that it might not have anti-Semitic outcomes if you decide to then attack all people who support Israel. But I think it is not inherently anti-Semitic to believe that Israel should become, say, a state for all its citizens and not be specifically Jewish state. There's nearly 20% of Israeli citizens are Palestinian Arabs, and many of them would like Israel to be a state for all its citizens rather than a specifically Jewish state. They would believe that the only way, as non-Jewish citizens of Israel, the only way they could attain full equality in Israel, is Israel becoming a state for all its citizens and ceasing to be a Jewish state? I don't want to call that belief anti-Semitic. So in the, the definitions put forth by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, IHRA, they say that uh, denying the Jewish people the right to self-determination, for example, claiming that the existence of the state of Israel is a racist endeavor, is a, is a form of anti-Semitism. So it sounds like you're, you're taking issue with that to some extent. Yes, I disagree. The actual, the the full definition actually does provide a lot of caveats. So if you'll see at the top of that definition, they say may under certain circumstances, depending on context. This is the problem with this definition. People just look at the bullet points and not the caveat that precedes those bullet points, which doesn't say it's always anti-Semitic to call Israel a racist, a racist endeavor, for example. It just says, maybe. The way in that which that's interpreted is to assume that it's presumptively anti-Semitic if you oppose, if you accuse Israel of being a racist endeavor. Uh, now, I think that's one of the problems with that IHRA definition, that it uh, allows people and has led many people to argue that anti-Zionism, opposition to Israel as a Jewish state, is automatically anti-Semitic. And I may disagree with that, but I don't think it's anti-Semitic. Okay, so here's another fuzzy area, and that's holding Israel to a double standard. So Israel has had, I think, more resolutions against it by the UN than everybody else combined, for instance. Is that anti-Semitic in aggregate, even though any one particular criticism is not? There's no doubt that Israel receives a disproportionate amount of critical attention in the media and in the United Nations and has been the target of a many, many UN critical UN resolutions. Is that double standards? I'm not sure if that's evidence of double standards. I think that's more evidence of the an anti-Israel bias in the sense that it's convenient for countries for a whole variety of reasons to single out Israel for censure in the United Nations, the way regional groupings operate, you know, that it's, so it's a kind of 
convenient scapegoat. That's not necessarily that it's motivated by animus against Israel because it's a Jewish state. In, in other, so in other words, a state might be discriminated against, um, and I think there is discrimination, but it's not necessarily on account of its Jewishness. But let me push back on that a little bit because the UN resolutions, I think, are fueled largely because there are so many Muslim countries in the world. In my understanding of Islam, which is very limited, I admit, there is a belief that whatever lands were originally Muslim should stay Muslim, should always be Muslim. Southern Spain was Muslim, but that's the far reaches of the Islamic empire, whereas Israel is in the center of the center. It has holy places, and it's anathema for devout Muslims, or at least a large swath of devout Muslims, to believe that land must be Muslim. So when it was controlled by the Turks. It wasn't Arab, but it was still Muslim. So that's not anathema. But for it to be controlled by Jews is, and also particularly because Jews are supposed to be subordinate. They were subordinate in all the Arab lands for all those years. And there's no way they should be in charge of Muslims. Yeah. So I think that's particularly the Islamist position. And I think there is anti-Semitism in that. I'm not sure, though, whether all of those UN votes are by, in many cases, they were secular Arab regimes or non-Muslim. They may be Muslim-majority countries, but that doesn't mean to say that the, that ideology, that Islamist ideology that you were describing, is what shaped their vote. I'm political scientist. We're going to look at what were the factors that actually determine how countries vote in the United Nations? Is it by the majority? Is it, is it, was it a, a kind of ideology or was it that they wanted to shine, for example, a harsh light on Israel because they wanted to distract attention or divert attention from their own human rights violations. And so Israel was just a useful scapegoat. It could have been another small country without lots of friends. Israel doesn't have a whole lot of allies. It's a very small country. Countries could afford to not have relations with Israel. So there are many other realpolitik reasons. I'm not suggesting that anti-Semitism doesn't play a role, but... Um, we can't assume that anti-Semitism is the reason for all of those lopsided votes. Uh, just the same as, for example, we might say critics would point out that while it's true that in, say, the UN General Assembly, Israel has been disproportionately targeted, in the United Nations Security Council, it's been shielded largely. Other countries who have, who have violated international laws have faced far worse treatment and sanctions and critical votes. Does the United States shield Israel from these because of philo-Semitism? In other words, it also receives positive treatment, if you like. So I think this is one of the things I'm looking at in my book is the, the Israel's treatment in the UN. I think it's, understand. I understand why for many Jews, the easiest explanation of this uh, differential treatment is anti-Semitism. I think actually without disputing that without rejecting it entirely, I think there's more, there are other kinds of reasons for why Israel is often, has often been a, a target for censure in the UN. And I would say that's an example of where, ways in which we often, we're often in danger of, of saying we see something we, which we dislike, which we, is unfair, right, or is unfair treatment. And the reason for that is animus against Jews. And we might want to distinguish between there's still unfair treatment. Israel is being discriminated against, but the reason for it is not necessarily because it's a Jewish state. 
So are, are you seeing a kind of a similar pattern that some Jewish groups or Jewish individuals make claims of anti-Semitism when it's not necessarily valid? It's analogous to how in racially, for instance, Claudine Gay, some people are saying, oh, she was let go purely because she was black. And other people say no. Yes, and those are going to be, those are bound to be contested cases. And we have many of those. And I, and I think, so I, I do think sometimes we might, wrongly make charges of anti-Semitism. But I also think that doesn't mean to say that those charges are being deliberately made in a false manner. You hear often on the left people accusing Jewish organizations of deliberately using charges of anti-Semitism in a knowingly false manner, knowingly, knowing that they are false, but deliberately manu- using these charges as a weapon against critics of Israel. In other words, they're being accused of acting in bad faith, that they are weaponizing charge of that anti-Semitism. My own view, that may be true for some groups and some individuals may mean deliberately and, and very consciously misusing charges of anti-Semitism. I, I think in, in most cases, though, it's un, for reasons that we, we discussed, we sincerely believe these are anti We sincerely believe these charges, even if they're unfounded. We worry that there's anti-Semitism there. And in the case of the UN, there no doubt is anti-Semitism. The question is whether that is the driving force behind all of these lopsided votes in the United Nations General Assembly. And I think we can say a charge of anti-Semitism may not be, may be unfounded, but that doesn't mean to say it is disingenuous. To what extent should Jewish feelings of feeling of being persecuted or feeling that there's an anti-Semitic uh, act or attitude being directed toward Jews, to what extent should that feeling be respected as not necessarily as an indication that it truly is an anti-Semitic act or belief, but at least take into account that's the reaction and, and it should be investigated to see if there's something there? 100%. I think it should. I think as as histo- and a historically oppressed group as a pro- uh, and as, as victims of racism, just as we say with any victims of, of racism, or victims in general, that we must take seriously their experience and perception. And that doesn't mean to say that the victims have the sole right to determine whether or not it was indeed a racist or anti-Semitic attack, for example. But certainly their claims, their charges must be taken seriously. And I think one of the problems today, especially on college campuses, for example, is there is a suspicion when Jewish students make charges of anti-Semitism. People sometimes say, are they really just making these charges in or because they're uncomfortable with this criticism of Israel or they're uncomfortable with this protest? I think Jews have a right to be heard. And when Jews make charges of anti-Semitism, it's absolutely incumbent upon organizations and anyone to take those charges seriously and to investigate them if necessary. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that Jews alone get to determine what is or isn't anti-Semitic. Would it be anti-Semitic for, let's say, a, a Jewish group on campus that's Zionist but believes in the two-state solution and, and is particularly uh, publicly empathetic toward uh, Palestinian rights, uh, but still being excluded just because they still label themselves as Zionists? Would that be anti-Semitic? Maybe not, huh? <laughs> It's tricky. I think if, if you're excluding a specifically a Jewish group because of its Zionism, and in other words, if Jews are, spe- are being excluded because they're Zionists, but not, say, a Christian student who might be Zionist, 
then it's discriminatory and then it's anti-Semitic. If you want to have a policy of no Zionists in our environmental group, I personally don't think that's a very useful uh, and on a college campus, I think it goes against the whole ethos of engagement in, in the college and inclusion. And so it disturbs me why Zionists specifically are being excluded rather than believers of any other kind of nationalism. We don't say that about if, if a foreign student from China wanted to join that group, are we going to say if you believe in Chinese nationalism, you can't join the group? No, it's just Zionism that is somehow particularly held to be a particularly noxious ideology or a form of nationalism. But setting that aside, if you if the group in question were to say anybody, be they Jewish or non-Jewish, cannot believe in, cannot support Zionism, whatever they define Zionism to mean, then at least it's consistent. And I think it's wrong. It's discriminating against Zionists. You could say that's not anti-Semitic. It's just it's uh, uh, you're doing that on the basis of political ideology. But if it's only Jewish students who are being subjected to this, and it's only Jewish students who are having to disavow their Zionism, which is often the case, then I think it is discriminatory against Jewish students. You know, there probably aren't that many Christian Zionist groups in the U.S. I know that there's some in Korea, but <laughs> Japan. The largest pro-Israel group in the United States is Christian Zionists. But on campus, though, on campus? It's true, but on probably on, on many college campuses in the South, they are probably many Christian colleges more in some places. The ones we hear about, and we're, but that's it. Many Christians are Zionists, but it's not... We're not really hearing many cases of Christians being attacked for their Zionism. Exactly. So we only have a few minutes left. I wonder if we could talk a bit about uh, your recommendations for education against anti-Semitism. Uh, in your recent talk in September, you talked about maybe Holocaust education is not the way to go, in fact. So what, what, why not and what's the better way to go? I think the problem with Holocaust education, I think it's absolutely necessary to learn about the Holocaust and that came across some disturbing statistic recently that showed that this number of young Americans don't believe the Holocaust actually happened. So I think Holocaust education is first and foremost essential to counter Holocaust denial. But the problem with it is it can suggest that anti-Semitism is basically Nazism, is what the Nazis did. And that unless you're a Nazi and unless you support exterminating Jews and genocide, you're not anti-Semitic. And it therefore can then lead people to overlook or ignore or fail to recognize the much more common forms of anti-Semitism and the more more common ways in which anti-Semitism can manifest. And so I think in order to recognize that, it is necessary to learn about these anti-Semitic tropes and stereotypes, to learn the history of them, to learn about the ways in which Jews have been scapegoated historically, for example, being blamed for the bubonic plague, and to learn about the ways in which wealthy Jews have been accused of pulling the strings of governments, as, her, as occurred with the Rothschilds in the 19th century. So in, it's important not to learn about anti-Semitism just in the context of the Holocaust or in the years immediately leading up to the Holocaust, but to understand that there's a much, much longer history, and in particular to, be, to teach people to be able to identify anti-Semitic tropes, anti-Semitic stereotypes and anti-Semitic myths, because those are the things that are circulating and increasingly circulating 
more and more on social media. And so I think that's the most important form uh, that that, that anti-Semitism education should take today. Now, would it be helpful for, for people to know about the historical roots about some of these stereotypes? For instance, uh, a big one would be uh, Jewish exclusion from professions uh, such that only they could do money lending because Christians weren't allowed to. And then once they were lending money, then they got targeted for uh, demanding their money back when they after they lent the money and that sort of thing. Yes, absolutely. I think I don't want to suggest, I think there's a danger. We don't want to look to the roots to so much to suggest that there's some sort of reason for anti-Semitism here. Or oh, well, the reason why Jews have been uh, targeted is because of their historic roles as money lenders, for example, because that, that, in other words, ascribes anti-Semitism to the behavior of the victims. But I do think we need to learn about the history of it. We need to learn about how not just anti-Semitism, but all but other forms of racism have historically been around for a long time, how they've often gone together, how, for example, Islamophobia and anti-Semitism were widespread or, or Judaophobia or anti-Judaism were, the dom- were dominant in Europe for centuries. So once we understand how widespread these beliefs have been historically, we can then begin to appreciate why they might, why they're still persisting to this day, because we realize that these ideas don't come out of nothing. They're not just something that emerged yesterday. They're something that have deep historical roots. And therefore, it's something quite hard for societies to eradicate and that you really need to really make concerted effort to eradicate these ideas. I think there's been some awareness of that when it comes to anti-black racism. When it comes to anti-black ideas, people, many white people have have come to acknowledge how embedded these stereotypes are in American culture. And as a result, we've been able to address that to some extent. And I think that same education has to take place with regards to anti-Jewish racism and other forms of racism. And in in that kind of broader context. Exactly. So I want to thank you for coming. Dov Waxman, a political science professor and chair of Israel Studies at UCLA and the author of many books on those subjects. Thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.